Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. This week's episode is part two of our 2021 highlights. Today, we'll be covering some of my favorite moments from episodes 72 to 89. To listen to the highlights from episodes 42 to 71, you can check out part one of this special highlight series. And if you're curious about episodes 1 to 40, you can also listen to our 2020 highlights episode from last year. Links to these can be found in our show notes. In this episode, discover what's possible when community inspires change. Episode 72 featured autistic wildlife photographer and activist Alfie Bowen. In these next clips, Alfie talks about using his autistic strengths to fuel his photography, highlighting animal emotion, and connecting people with the natural world. I think I definitely connect more with animals than with people. I definitely feel more myself around animals than I do around people bit like the flick of a switch when I get to a zoo or whatever. All the stresses and anxiety just vanishes while I'm there. And then I leave the zoo gate and it all floods back again. What are your autistic strengths that affect your photography? I think the biggest one is noticing every small detail, which can be quite overwhelming in everyday life. But in my photography, it allows me to notice viewpoints and angles and details that other people wouldn't for example on a zebra if there's a white hair on a black stripe I notice it straight away so I pick up on all of that and that comes across in my photography how would you describe your art your photos quite emotional or I hope they are that's what I try that's my main focus through my photography to get people to connect to the natural world to look deeper than just the appearance of an animal, to inspire them to care about the natural world. They're often black and white because I always feel that that encourages people to look deeper, to connect emotionally to the animal. Um, A lot of them, I'd say 90% of them focus on the eye, which is famously known as the kind of window to the soul. So I always focus on the eye, trying to get a pin sharp eye. I was joined by Lisa Pugliese-Lacroix in episode 73. Lisa is a speech-language pathologist, a former collegiate tennis player, and the founder and CEO of Love Serving Autism, a nonprofit organization that provides therapeutic tennis instruction for individuals with autism. Here's Lisa explaining the benefits of tennis for autistic people. What they're learning in tennis can carry over um, the skills they're learning, the hand-eye coordination, the fitness, the balance, you know, the learning to control the power. Like a lot of the kids, when they get on the court, they don't know how to control the ball. So it helps with their mo- motor planning skills, uh, coordinating, you know, their movements. Some of the kids hit the ball way too hard and it like flies out of the court. And we have to teach them, okay, you have to hit it within these lines. They don't realize how strong they are. Mm. And some of the children need help with 
hitting the ball more powerfully and really feeling like how the ball feels on their racket. It's repetitive and it's very visual and it's social. A lot of, a lot of the kids come out, you know, if we have 10 children, up to 10 children in a class per hour, they get to see their friends, they get to meet new people and it increases, you know, their ability to, uh, you know, uh, improve their social skills too. So I think there are so many benefits and even it benefits the parents too, because it's a support network for them and they don't feel isolated. You know, they're raising a child with autism and maybe they don't know anyone in the community or they don't really know where they're accepted. They don't want to take their child somewhere where they might feel they're being judged. But when they come to tennis, their child can have a moment and they're still, you know, it's okay. You're here with everyone else. And it's like more of an unconditional, like loving, you know, family unit. In episode 74, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stephen Shore. An autistic professor of special education at Adelphi University, Dr. Shore came on the show to talk about what he calls the four A's of autism. Here's Stephen on the need to consider cultural differences when disseminating strategies in autism services. Autism strategies and concepts and whatnot is not something that you can export. What that means is that it's very important to make sure that you're culturally relevant, mm-hmm. maintain cultural relevancy. So with the work that we're doing in uh, Qatar, we are putting a lot of effort into making sure that whatever we do is culturally relevant. And an example might be is that when I talk about employment, one important strategy at least in the United States and similar countries, is to uh, get the child involved in doing chores at home, making the bed, feeding the cat, keeping the house clean. And that can work well in many, many cultures. But there may be other cultures where it's just a part of that culture that somebody else does that and is a caretaker of some sort. And if that's the case, then the opportunities for doing household chores just don't exist. And so can't recommend things that don't exist in a particular culture. And you have to become aware and sensitive to these cultures, to these differences. And you can't say they're good or they're bad. They're just differences, and you have to find ways to work around them. So that way that will prevent uh, problems with recommending things or suggesting things that just aren't going to work in a particular culture. It's important to get to know another culture, to be accepting of other cultures, different ways that people do things. And that's just part of what we need to do with autism as well. So as we look at these autistic characteristics, we need to turn away from thinking that perhaps they're bad Mm -hmm. and just removing value judgments and just saying, well, that's just the way it is. Sensory issues just are. Differences in communication just are. They just exist. And now the question is, what can we do to work with these differences? Yeah. With the person who doesn't speak and probably will never speak. So can we find another means of communication and work with that? And likewise, in various cultures, there are just some things that will never be done in the United States that are done in other countries. That might be helpful in the United States, but that's just not done here. That's not the culture. And then we can flip it around, too. There's things that we do here that aren't done in other places. So we need to work with what there is. 
episode 75, was a double feature with our CEO, Molly, and our global autism partner from Kenya, Pooja Panesser. In these next clips, Molly explains our essential, preferable, preferable to me framework, and Pooja talks about her experience collaborating with Skillcore teams. We always talk about how everything we do has to pass the flyaway test, meaning when we fly out of that country, whatever it is that we were working on should be sustainable, should be wanted, should be relevant so that it continues. We don't really care what is going on when we're there right in front of everybody. We care what's going on when we fly away. And that's something that you also, one of the many lessons that skill core members get while they're in the field. And again, they really get it while they're in the field because they're in that kind of sponge mode, like, okay, how can we do this? And sustainability is so important because we won't be here. But then they come home and they use some of those frameworks that we use to create sustainable change. They use some of those frameworks in the families with the families that they're working with, right? So really prioritizing what are the needs of this family at this time in the same way that we prioritize what are the needs of the center. And, you know, what is essential right now? We talk about this framework where it's essential, preferable, or preferable to me. And if we're being honest, a lot of times when recommendations are made, they're made in the category of preferable to me. Like it's preferable to me that it gets done this specific way. And when you stay in the preferable to me space, you lose out entirely on what's essential. Any changes that were proposed or suggested, they first came through me. So I would be able to see, is this something that will be sustainable? Is this something that we can actually develop as a system into our center and keep it going? Is it relevant to what we're doing? Is it culturally appropriate? And then I would be able to say, okay, yes, this is how we're going to roll it out. And I would have that team of professionals to help me roll it out. So every time I would struggle with maybe, you know, we need a bit more hands-on in terms of training this topic or this aspect, this is where Skillco would always be there to back me up and we'd be able to move forward with it. So it's always been an amazing experience. The continuation has been great. Um, I don't feel that I had um, people coming to tell me what I should do but more like coming to support what I was already doing and showing me other suggestions, which, you know, we we must always be open to. Episode 76 was a Global Autism Community Roundtable event. That month's topic was safety in public, and the panelists included two autism self-advocates, Rachel Barcelona and Thomas Island, the father of a 13-year-old autistic boy, Jamil Owens, who is also the host of The Awesome Show, and our Global Autism Project partner from the Dominican Republic, Mari Carmen Hazuri, or Kaki for short. If you'd like to attend and participate in any of our future events, you can sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Here are some of this panel's thoughts about autism-specific police training, disclosure ID cards, autonomy with social media, and teaching autistic children to protect their bodies. Yes, I actually have had experiences where police officers didn't really care that I was autistic and they didn't want to understand. Like I was having a meltdown and then this officer was just yelling at me and 
I, of course, didn't have a card, but I stood up for myself. And that's just what I do. If you come after me, I'm going to come after you. But what I think, and people also think that I'm high all the time as well due to being autistic because I have a slower voice. But I just tell them, yeah, okay. (laughs) I, I don't know. I'm just totally numb to it. I don't care what people think. I think it should be an individual's choice to have a card. I wouldn't want one because I personally think I am more than my disability and it would be embarrassing. I can fend for myself when a policeman or woman is being rude to me and it's happened and I will make sure it won't happen again. I'm not a parent, but I know there are parents on this call and then my mother and I have spoken to several over the years and we are leaving safety to chance. We think the kids know what to do. We think the officers will be understanding. We think there'll be a caregiver to explain the situation. That's all a risk. And I don't know about you, but we're talking about life and death here. One wrong word, one wrong move, and you could be gone. I don't mean to be so chaotic or worst case scenario, but sadly, this is the reality that we live in. If you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. My mother and I train police officers about the signs of autism and what to look for and how to approach this population. And we're also teaching people on the spectrum how to safely disclose their diagnosis to officers because the more information officers and first responders have, the better they can do their job. And Jamil's nodding along with that. He can attest to it. But basically, we need a safe way for people to disclose that information. And A little story I like to tell when I got pulled over for the first time, I thought to myself, oh, that officer wants to see my ID and my self-disclosure card. And I start to reach for it into my pocket. And an officer might think I'm going for a gun or a weapon. And thank goodness the officer didn't pull his gun on me. Otherwise, I might not be talking to you right now. But basically, we need to be showing young people how to safely get their information to officers. And I actually have, so let's say an officer asks for your ID then you can go get safely. So wait for someone to ask for your ID and then produce it along with a card like this. I'll put a website in the chat here, but basically this is what people need to know. First responders, rescuers about the signs of autism, emergency contact information and how to help the person. Mm -hmm. And you can check off accommodations so that the person who's questioning you or helping you can help you best. So this is helpful, but dangerous if not taught how to produce safely. I think it circles back to what we were just talking about. The last topic is giving the space to make their own decisions. You know, at the end of the day, they are capable. Rachel, you're capable. Tom, you're capable. So many autistics that I've met are capable of making their own decisions. And it's like, okay, as a parent, am I being overbearing, you know, am I being too much, too worried, which can hinder their growth. So, you know, when that day comes and it comes down for advocating for him too, when he steps to me and be like, Hey dad, you know what? I got it. I think I can speak for myself now. I think I'm good. Then I'm going to, I'm going to just fall back. I'm going to just relax. You know, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing for the community, but I'm going to fall back as far as being a voice for him. 
And I think this is one of the things too, if he wants to, you know, have a, a social media account, I want to discuss it with them. What are you going to, what are you planning to do? Is it personal? Is it business? You know, what, what are you thinking about? And kind of like, just pray about it and let them take the reins, you know, and hopefully during that time of now, and when that comes about, hopefully I'll just guide him right in life. So he'll, he'll know, you know, what decisions to make. Some of the things that we do is try to teach our kids from very, very young age that you need to get to know someone before you hug them or before they try to like move your body for you or before they go with you to the bathroom because you need help in the bathroom. We try to make sure that when we're teaching toilet training, we keep the door closed, even if they're little kids. And even if there's another student that the staff member is supposed to be with, you call another staff member to stay with that student. And you, if the staff member has to come into the bathroom with you and close the door because you need help in the bathroom, then we do that. But that helps the kids understand their privacy and that their bodies are private and that not everybody can see you when you're in the bathroom and not everybody can see you when you're naked. And then we talk about those things. We talk about where you can be naked and who's allowed to see you naked and who's allowed to ask you to take your clothes off. That's only your parents and your doctor when you're at the doctors with your parents. So it's about teaching those like discriminations of when these situations are okay. And then teaching our kids when like how to communicate when they happen and it's not okay. It's a lot of work that I feel gets forgotten. Episode 77 featured Cami McGovern, a mother and the author of Hard Landings, looking into the future of a child with autism. We talked about the, quote, disability cliff for adults with disabilities in the U.S. and the types of services available to them after they turn 22. This is Cami describing what success means for her son, Ethan. Success for Ethan was productivity and belonging to a community outside his family, feeling like a productive person in life. And I think that is a goal that a lot of families intuitively understand. That's the biggest thing they're shooting for is that you have connections to people who know and love you beyond your family and extended family or neighborhood or something like that. How that can be achieved is also through a really good day program, but I think Ethan found it at the farm. I think it can also be found in a lot of different ways. It's almost sacrilegious to say, but I think it can be found in volunteer jobs as well. And that's something that nobody wants people to agree that volunteering should be the ambition for this group because volunteering is unpaid and that's where they got abused so much before. But the problem is if you don't allow that, and a lot of places don't legally allow it unless it's a volunteer position that typically developing. So pet shelters will allow it and food banks will allow it. But there's a lot of Ethan's friends who say, this is what I do for a job. I'm at the pet shelter. To me, that's meaningful. Why are we undercutting that or saying that doesn't count for some reason? If that's what's, if they are needed and part of a world there, I still, uh, the, the danger is, and some people will vehemently argue that that works against the ultimate goal of getting paid full, you know, full paid community based jobs. 
But I feel like most parents would say the real goal is belonging somewhere and having something to do. In episode 78, I spoke with Gary Jesh and Leslie Baldwin. Gary is a live animation performer and the founder of Invirtua, a telehealth learning service that uses animated avatars to interact with autistic children. Leslie is Invirtua's senior partner, as well as a member of their board of advisors. She was previously a manager and special educator at Texas Children's Hospital. Next, Gary and Leslie talk about using avatars to teach social skills and build relationships. We have an avatar that looks like a counter attendant. He's actually designed off of a young man who is autistic. So we put him in this photographic setting on the screen where the avatar takes on the role of the counter attendant. And then our little guy, we were able to coach him and help him practice what was going on from the time that he walked into McDonald's until they paid for their food. So it was really great. We could actually practice with that little guy. And so it was only about two and a half weeks of, you know, work on him. I mean, maybe like three sessions or whatever. And the next time our his mom and he came in, she goes, oh, you wouldn't believe it. We were at McDonald's and he ordered his own lunch. It was a combination of the practice, right? Mm -hmm. And overcoming maybe a little bit of fright of some type that was holding him back and just understanding more rather than it being unknown and being afraid of the unknown, he had self-confidence. And for a 10-year-old to gain self-confidence that quickly, you know, that is a pretty special thing when that happens. We were all just like, yeah, you know, (laughs) high five. (laughs) It was great. I think the other thing too with... The families that are involved, depending on if they look like they're struggling a little bit in terms of how to interact or how to support their child, we're always there to kind of help support them also. Sometimes you can have a parent that might be helping a little too much and say, okay, let's take a breath and let's think in your mind, let's count to 10 and see if your child can respond. And it isn't always verbal in terms of how they're responding and being respectful of that and understanding where is this child trying to communicate and what can we do to help support that. And I really feel like the avatars become kind of like a play partner for the child that you want them to feel like this is someone who's on their side, who's really gets them, really likes them and is supporting where they're at and not making a judgment on anything, just trying to help support them. And I think it's so important for these kids. Episode 79 was a global autism community roundtable discussion about navigating social situations. The panel included Anthony Ayani, Sangeeta Jain, and Vanessa Lista. Anthony is an autism self-advocate a former NCAA Division I basketball player and a motivational speaker. Sangeeta is the mother of an autistic young man and our Global Autism Project partner in Chandigarh, India. And Vanessa has an autistic brother and is a kinesiology and psychology student. Listen to their ideas regarding how to change the narrative about autism. So I played on a team full of guys at Michigan State that were the kings of sarcasm and jokes. And one of my biggest weaknesses being on the autism spectrum is 
I'm very black and white and I cannot understand jokes and sarcasm really well. Like if somebody's joking, but I take it seriously, like I kind of lose my mind. If somebody's being sarcastic and I really can't tell if they're being serious or not, like I get so confused. So there were so many times in that locker room in Michigan state where I was like, okay, is this person being serious? Like, are they kidding? And so early on, it was a struggle for me, but like, you know, there was a little incident we had in the weight room between me and one of my teammates who plays in the NBA, Draymond Green, where I didn't understand a joke he was saying. And then it got to the point where I got so upset with him. And then he was like, you know, don't be on the team then if you can't understand jokes. And then my strength and conditioning coach kind of, you know, stopped the situation by telling Draymond, hey, here's why Anthony can't understand your jokes, you know, because he's on the autism spectrum. You know, he's autistic. A lot of things are very black and white for him. You know, he doesn't understand your jokes because he thinks sometimes you're picking on him. So after that, you know, my teammates kind of had a better idea of how my mind processed things, you know, how my brain processed things very differently than they did. So there were times where some of my teammates were were joking, but I, in my mind, I didn't, I couldn't tell if it was joking or being serious. I wasn't afraid to lean on to a couple of guys and say, hey, was so-and-so kidding or so-and-so being serious? And they were just like, no, he, he was just kidding. Like, don't worry about it. But if there was like, hey, we got to be back here at the arena tonight. We got to shoot free throws at nine o'clock. But if they said it in a sarcastic way and I still can't tell, I would still lean on my teammates or even some of my coaches and go, hey, so-and-so said we got to be back here tonight at nine o'clock for free throw shooting. Was he kidding? Was he serious? I can't, I couldn't tell the way because of, because of his tone. And then the response would be, yeah, we got to be back here at nine o'clock tonight just for 20 minutes of free throw shooting. We're good. So just being able for me to lean on my teammates and kind of lean on my coaches again, because I, I talked about that trust process earlier, you know, for me to be able to lean on them and go, hey, was he being serious or was he just kidding? But if that incident in the weight room with Draymond didn't happen, you know, I really don't know how I would be able to communicate with all my teammates like I was able to the last couple of years during my time at Michigan State. When we introduce our children, our siblings to the other people in the community, we should not just talk about the deficits and only the challenges that they face because then it becomes like, oh my God, it's probably to deal with them is very, really very difficult. So we should just, you know, change the topic and talk little nice things about them and how wonderful and how fun it is to be with them. And then, yes, of course, they have these, these difficulties and this is how you can do it. So we need to, when we were talking about the inclusion we need to change the way we introduce the people on spectrum to the community because, okay, this is the sensory issue and this is what I also did that. But when you want the others to get into the inclusion, you know, as we talk a lot about the reinforcements, they also need to be reinforced for them to get into this. So when my son was small, I always, you know, did that peer buddy system where like anyone would be my son's buddy would get beat, become demonetized. I don't know what you call the class leader of the classroom for that day. So every day, every child would say like, oh, I want to be sitting with Subrit. I want to be his buddy today. So I guess there has to be some kind of reinforcement attached to it. And that's how I started inviting my daughter's friends to our home and so that they get reinforced and then gradually introduce Subrit to them. and. That's how we built up some sort of social interactions. And I'm very proud to say that Subrit is uh, very well accepted and uh, loved by everyone. When you do go to explain that to someone, there needs to be 
something to not make them afraid. Like it was said earlier, when you're explaining it, you're saying things that they don't like. Sometimes that steers people away from them because they're afraid of doing something wrong. So I feel like sometimes it's more so, well, they love doing this. Do you like doing that? Like maybe go play this with them or things like that, like showing the commonness between people, like their similarities and their likes, because if you get them to come together with something they like, instead of showing them things they don't like, I mean, obviously there comes a point when maybe when it happens, you say, oh, okay, well, they didn't understand that, but let's try it this way. I think giving them a correction and maybe how to work with them. So if like you understand, like, so with my brother, like I understand his certain like signs and stuff. So if I tell them how I'm used to working around them and making him feel more comfortable, if you're giving ideas of like that instead of don't do this, I think that's what steers people away because they're so afraid of upsetting them and not screwing up, if you will, not making a mistake. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And like, I mean, I'd be a nervous wreck too to offend anyone or upset them. Right. So I think a lot of it is, yes, we need to, teach acceptance and understanding of it but I think a lot of it has to do with maybe us learning the social skills around it too and how to accommodate their needs because if we're not accommodating what they need then how are we supposed to understand them in episode 80 I was joined by Tara Vance and Kate Jones Tara is the founder of Neuroclastic an autistic-led nonprofit organization that publishes articles by autistic writers and professionals advocating for representation and human rights. Kate is a psychotherapist and visual designer at Neuroclastic. Next, Tara and Kate discuss autistic empathy and positive affirmations for autistic children. We don't respond to telling someone Oh, that must have been so hard for you when they tell us something hard that happened because that uh, is assuming their emotional states and that they want us to respond to their emotions. We don't want, I mean, some people, some autistics might, but in my experience and how I am and how Kate is, and we talk about this all the time, we don't want to validate each other's emotions We want to see how close you can get to understanding what it's like. So if I tell you something and you don't have a child about how my child is extremely hyperactive and you tell me about this time that you adopted a shelter puppy that chewed up all your furniture, I don't think that you are trying to one-up me. I think that you're saying this is as close as I can get to knowing what that's like. And I think of that as profoundly empathetic. Because you're trying to tell me that you've heard me, that this is where you are, and then you're giving me permission implicitly to explain how they're not the same or how they're exactly the same. So we, we do this automatically. Other autistic people don't feel like that's being dismissive we feel like that is being responsive because you're not trying to coerce. I don't understand why other people would tell me what emotions I have. (laughs) Why would that help me in any way? Or 
how is that showing empathy? I want them to tell me how close they can get to where I am. So I know, you know, how well are we really relating? Phrases like, don't be so dramatic. Don't be so sensitive. Keep your hands still. Quiet hands. They are the kind of throwaway comments that autistic children hear. And if you're not autistic or if if you're not really listening for them, they could feel throwaway. They could feel almost nothing, you know, just sit properly. What is the proper way to sit? But all of the time, the autistic person, the autistic child is taking these messages in and thinking, I'm only okay if I take up as little space as I possibly can, if I keep really still, if I can make myself and my body and my mind do the things that you're telling me it needs to do. And the consequences of that are dire. When we talk about suicide prevention, as much as we talk about sexual abuse and other types of trauma, we need to think about the messages that we are telling, giving children about who they are, how they move through the world, how they process information, how their bodies move, how they sit, how they express themselves, what language they use. Because teaching a child to mask their authentic selves is a huge risk factor for significant mental health difficulties and suicide down the line. The overall permission that kids need and, and the affirmation that kids need is, I love you as you are. Not, it's unconditional. It's not, I love you so long as you, if you, when you. It's just, I love you as you are. And there are permissions that go into that second row, which is kind of more rainbow and bright, which is, um, it's okay to move your body. There are no wrong, way to, wrong, wrong ways to move. You can stim freely. You have a right to communication. Episode 81 featured Tom Oliver, an autism self-advocate, TEDx speaker, and aspiring lawyer from Australia who has dedicated his career to helping autistic individuals caught up in the justice system. Listen to Tom's argument that autistic people should not be punished simply for being autistic. I really think it it behooves us to consider, in light of the aforementioned three autistic characteristics in the corresponding case law I've found, to consider whether autistic people are being punished, are punished in such cases simply for being autistic. And as controversial as, as that might sound, Rachel, you know, if, if John is unable to, t- to decipher who, is, who he should or should not take instructions from, and I should say that John was another autistic client who he had his sister's boyfriend invite him to a party. And John was very excited. He'd never been invited to a party before. And at the party, John met a stranger whom he thinks he's his friend within 20 minutes. And this newfound friend gave John a bag and told him to put it in the boot of his car. And so John, thinking he was doing a good deed to this newfound friend, took the bag, put it in the boot of his car, and at the end of the party, he took the bag home and put it under his bed. And being curious, uh, John decided to inevitably open the bag to find that it contained guns in it. And John panicked, he was scared, he didn't know what to do. So he put the bag of guns back under his bed and eventually the cleaners found this bag of guns and John ended up in prison. 
I think that's a really good example, and this was a really unfortunate case we dealt with, of where an inability to read and respond to social cues, that first um, autistic characteristic, uh, can render them really vulnerable. And so, if, you know, if people like John are unable to decipher who they should or should not take instructions from, and to know what to do in extreme circumstances, such as finding guns in a bag he's already in possession of, uh, if Tim, uh, who can't help but lose control and have a meltdown when experiencing a sensory overload due to his hypersensitivity to touch, you know, the bus inspector brushed past his arm. And if Darius can't help but be drawn to trains to the point of operating them without being employed to do so, well, then for starters, you know, as I say, why can't we just employ people like Darius? But overall, are we not just punishing these autistic people simply for being autistic? And if so, I, th I think there should be an uproar. You know, is it really fair to imprison these people just like everyone else? And I firmly believe it is not. I think that a suitable therapy is in most cases more appropriate and studies back that up accordingly. Episode 82 was another Global Autism Community roundtable discussion about preparing for adulthood. And its diverse panel included Danny Bowman, Robert Schmoos, Cami McGovern, and Cheryl Albright. Danny is an autism self-advocate and animator. Robert is an autism self-advocate and licensed clinical social worker. Cami is an author and the mother of a 25-year-old autistic adult. And Cheryl is an occupational therapist, certified yoga instructor, and autism sibling. In the following clips, they touch on transitioning into college, intentional communities, and making decisions as a guardian. Well, transitioning into adulthood may be hard for anyone, but it's even harder if you're an autistic person like me. Change for us is very scary, and figuring out what we should do for the rest of our lives, we transition to adulthood can be very confusing if we don't have the right support for our families. However, if we focus on our passion and turn it into a career path with the help of our family, then transitioning will just happen naturally. It could be any passion. For example, if you love trains, then maybe you can focus on a career that is about trains and other automobiles. Some people who are into trains can actually be historians or engineers. For me, I've always loved animation ever since I could pick up a pencil. I was always drawing all over the house. My family, instead of asking me not to draw on the walls, they encouraged me. And as I got older, my family always encouraged me to do what I love and gave me all the tools that I need to develop my passion. However, going from high school to college was very scary because it was a different routine. So my family made sure I've always had assistance to transition in the first month or so of each semester in college to help me get acclimated. My family knew I could handle the academics just fine, but it was the transitional part that was difficult. Getting used to new routines, it's always scary for some of us, but we could do it. But some of us just need extra help in that department. And asking for accommodations is a good thing too, because it's another way of helping you succeed. There is no shame in having accommodations. I've always found myself in situations where I would kind of throw myself in them. And one of them would have to be when I transitioned to college straight away from high school. Like that was my goal. That was, that was my goal. And, you know, one of the things that I was told by a psychologist who did like, you know, who evaluated me in his evaluation said, it's very, because you're autistic, it's very unrealistic for you to live alone for four years at college. And you know what? 
I was taken aback by that. And so were my parents. They told me I, I really should go ahead and do it. And I did. You know what? It was kind of, there was a lot of things that was unexpected. You know, like it was the first time me living on my own. I was like 18 years old. I had to be responsible for things. And you know what? It was hard at times, but I just kept get going at it. I took it one day at a time. I feel that that was something that really helped me through it. Then I, after that, went to grad school and graduated from my master's for one within a year. And then I was able to go forward, get my LSW license, failed the test twice, passed the third time. Then after a couple of years, went for my LCSW exam, failed twice, passed it the third time. But, you know, I just kept going. I guess because I wanted to really prove to myself that I was someone who can succeed, that I was someone who wasn't going to give up. One of the things that I was most impressed by when I traveled to Florida were the existence of what we do not have anywhere in Massachusetts, which is kind of intentional communities that have been created as apartment complexes, but it's developmentally disabled with a wide variety. And it was much more lightly staffed, I guess is how I would put it, with only two people in uh, money more during the day. But and what they were doing was taking care of each other. They were teaching each other grocery shopping, cooking lessons. And my question is, those of you who are living independently in your own apartment are the example of where the government would like every single autistic person to end up. (laughs) It really is. Independently in your own apartment, you are the shining example of a success story. Would you ever consider that it would be nice to be in a community with fellow folks with a similar background where you were mentoring others? Or is it in fact, would that be rolling things back for you? In our area in Massachusetts, they will not allow group homes. They, they separate them. They don't want people clustered with disabilities of any kind. You can have four in a home and you have need a quarter mile or more in between homes. They do not want any clustering. And that's just a question I have because I feel like there's, there's strength when people are able to come together or help and assistance and genuine community. The most recent one was to move him from New York to Florida, which sounds kind of backwards, um, especially after hearing Cammy's research. But he was being severely neglected in the New York state system. And so he, I asked, I didn't just move him. We were on a FaceTime call. He doesn't talk, but I was talking to him and I was like, hey, do you want to get out of there? <laughs> Like, do you, you know, and it was quite clear that when we would pick him up and do things with him in New York and try to drop him off, he wouldn't get out of the car. Hmm. And so that was my sign that he was just done. And so when we got him out of there, he, he didn't even look back. He was just like, I'm, I'm done. When I moved him March of 2020, when things started to shut down, I still was able to get him navigated the system, got him into a placement within five and a half weeks. So I had things lined up ahead of time, which is unheard of, even without the pandemic. (laughs) Completely unheard of. I just knew, I learned the system. I knew how to use the system to my advantage. And as far as the placement, we had to take whatever was open. I couldn't work. 
somebody has to have his eye on their eyes on him 24 seven. So, you know, me running my business, yes, I could take some time off, but it wasn't like I could just stop working altogether, which is what a lot of adults do here because of that seven to 10 year or longer waiting list to get services. And that's always been my argument when it comes to legislation. But anyway, he agreed to it. He didn't like the snow. He, they said he would get cranky in the winter. And so I said, Hey, do you want to move someplace where it doesn't snow? You know, there's nicer weather, you know, I kept it kind of simple, but he seemed to understand what I was talking about and was game for it. And he did a lot better on an airplane than I ever expected he would do. And he's just kind of surprised everybody. So as far as that goes, yeah, he had some say. I didn't just say, okay, I'm here to move you. Like I did have conversations about it because people are like, oh, you show pictures of you two FaceTiming. And I was like, he's listening. I'm talking. But he, I mean, he had some, he has some nonverbal communication. I know and he's listening and I know he's done because he flips that cat over. In episode 83, we heard from Lafaya Mitchell a licensed marriage and family therapist, and the creator of The LaFeya Way, her relational approach to building effective interactions. She is also the mother of three children, two of whom are autistic. Here's LaFeya explaining what she calls the emotion-soaking phenomenon. If you do not interact with a hypersensitive child and with a calm internal experience, then you can expect that you're going to get very difficult reactions from that child because they're going to take what's coming from you. They're going to soak that in. And sometimes it'll be multiplied in them times 10 and they won't understand that that feeling energy came from you. They will believe that it's their own feeling, which has become now their own feeling energy because they take it on as their own now. That's why I call it the sponging, uh, taken in as their own. And then you will misunderstand their reaction to what it is you're saying to them. The more knowledgeable you are about what's really going on, like understanding the real truth, the better you can respond. So then if you come, you've had a bad day at work, you ask a child to clean their room and they have a meltdown, then you can understand that perhaps there's a possibility that maybe they took in some of that energy that you had, which you knew felt bad in the first place, that you had, and that's why they're having the strong reaction, not simply just the clean your room. What happens when you have the, the strong emotional response is the brain tends to, by default, automatically try to figure out what happened to cause the bad feeling. <laughs> okay, And usually the brain's going to think of whatever is on the surface. Well, you said this or you did that will be the reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're empowered with this, now understanding the real truth, then when the brain tries to default there, then you can say, wait, okay, could it be hungry, angry, lonely, tired? Could it be a trigger space? So then it reduces the intensity and kind of the seriousness we take in this emotional reaction that happens in the body. So it gives you a way to have a better response, which takes me into the third step, which is to respond in alignment with your truest intentions, which is what? Okay, as a parent, you know that you want your children to feel safe, cared for, loved, all those wonderful things. But you get into reactions that reflect none of that, right? So when you're responding in alignment with your truest intentions, you're keeping in mind, which is understanding the real truth, another element of that, right? But you're keeping in mind 
What do I really want to get out of this interaction? What do I really want in my home? If you say that you want peace in your home and you're yelling, then you're operating entirely against your own (laughs) truer intentions. Episode 84 was a Global Autism Community roundtable discussion about overcoming obstacles. Its participants included autism self-advocates Cassidy Hooper, Jeff Snyder, Stephanie DeKramer, and David Sharif. Next, the self-advocates share their experiences around making friends, looking for employment, and dating. Going off on what Stephanie said about not wanting to be mean-spirited, like I'm the same way, and especially when someone is like talking constantly and I'm like, you know, getting tired and want to do something else. I don't want to hurt their feelings like in situations like that. Like I think it's pretty common for individuals on the autism spectrum. You know, personally for me, you know, since I'm so kind hearted that I want to see the good in everybody and I can't tell the difference whether someone's good or bad and I mean I want to see the good in everybody so it's hard to judge character of a person and I think that's very common on the autism spectrum. The thing is we want to see the good in everybody but unfortunately we have to understand that sometimes people are just you know too far gone in the head whether it's because you know they think they're entitled they think because you know they're above everybody I mean, regardless of status or celebrity or rank, we are all human beings and we have feelings. And unfortunately for us in the autism and neurodiversity communities, I do agree with Steph that we do, we, we can be doormats. I mean, we're prone to being walked over like carpets or rugs or doormats. I mean, because some of us can't speak up for ourselves. I mean, some of us are nonverbal. I know parents who have kids that are nonverbal. They can't, you know, talk. And unfortunately, that makes them easy to just be taken advantage of. And that's a really, it's a scary thing, not just for social, socially, but also for safety reasons. I think big thing is a job will list a bunch of requirements and we'll read it and think, oh, I don't meet that one, cross next. No, don't do that, okay? Because it's a thing. You think, oh, they're being 100% truthful. These are the requirements. If I only meet three out of five, then I don't meet the requirements, right? That seems logical, right? No. So a lot of the time they just list a whole bunch, but they don't actually expect you. Like You should just apply anyway. Like always just apply and be... Like fake it till you make it. Like I'm not saying fake anything. I mean, like I mean, your attitude should fake it till you make it. So I mean, let's say okay, you need this many. You need like two years experience in Python, and they want this much experience in Microsoft Excel, and they want this much blah 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 blah. blah, blah. And maybe you didn't go to university. Maybe you went to a polytechnic. That's a UK thing. Maybe it's like a trade school. I know there's like different names. Community college in the US. Like you might not meet the requirements, but if there's some things on the list that you meet, you should totally just apply because lots of times people get jobs that don't meet all the requirements. And I think it's an autism thing to think 
that whoever wrote this job application is being 100% honest. And if you just follow the guideline of the job application, you just tick the boxes, then you'll get the job. That's not how it works in the real world. I have also been messaging or searching for people online. As a matter of fact, I am in a Meet You post-grad dating group where people can introduce themselves and say who they are, what they do, what they, what they like to do. They can send a direct message or not. I've sent at least seven or eight direct messages. Maybe one I got a response. Maybe the others I didn't. But if they don't reply to you, then that's not your problem. It's not their problem. Don't waste your time on it. That will affect your chances of even searching for another good one. So keep those things in mind. Know the common priorities. Know what you love the most over the things that you actually do for yourself. And uh, that's all that I can say. I don't know exactly what would happen to me. You won't know exactly until the relationship grind begins. In episode 85, I had the pleasure of speaking with Lois Letchford. Lois is the mother of three young men, two of whom are on the autism spectrum. She has also personally struggled with dyslexia her entire life. However, she now uses it to her advantage as a literary spokesperson for learners who have fallen behind in the traditional classroom. Listen to Lois describe her teaching philosophy, which she calls MAPS. MAPS, mindset, M-A-P-S, mindset, active learning, play, student success. That's what MAPS stands for. Why is mindset so important? Because how we see children right at the beginning impacts how we teach them. Are we willing to say, what else do I have to do to help this child read? Are we looking for alternatives or are we just saying, well, they're just, you know, they're just a bit thick. Mm. They just can't do it, which is what happens to most of us. And we've provided the program and they didn't succeed. Well, you know, we've done what we can. We've spent our money. Every day a child comes to me, I want to say, A, I can teach you to read and B, we can love it in the process. And if you didn't get it yesterday, what did I do wrong? What else do I have to do to teach this child to read? That's my mindset. Second, A, active learning. I read a paper once about the difference between skilled readers and unskilled readers. And it said these are the list of characteristics of skilled readers. And one of the first ones is they are active learners. They read something and a picture pops into their mind. And they engage with the the picture and the text and live in another world. What do unskilled readers do? They read words, they do as they are told. So I always want to create active learners. P, play. When you're playing, learning's enjoyable. It's not painful. And here's my push. Dr. Mary Helen Imordano Yang has written papers, academic papers, and has done brain research on the power of emotions and learning. When children are happy, they're playing and they're learning, and emotions and learning are connected, and it's not an additional extra. The happy emotions are essential 
for connecting our memory. And that's what I did for Nicholas when we were in Oxford. And that's what I want to do with every student I have so that they're in my classroom and they're laughing and they're smiling because it's about connecting to memory and being relaxed when they're with you and say, it's okay if I make a mistake. And finally, from all of those three, you have student success. Success on a daily basis that leads to long-term success and some bigger jumps in learning. Episode 86 was a Global Autism Community roundtable discussion about coping with stress and sensory overload. Participating in this event were autism self-advocates Mary Johnston, Thomas Island, and Robert Schmoos, as well as community member Kia Burton. In these clips, you'll hear strategies around coping with triggers. For me personally, grocery stores are kind of my biggest kryptonite, if that makes sense. I'm somebody who's really like sensitive with different sensory realms. I get really overwhelmed with light and loud noises. I'm not good with like unexpected plans or changes or reactions. So going out is really difficult for me. And I actually have like a little autism bag that I take with me where I carry headphones and a weighted blanket in case I need it. I always have like backup water in case I need to like sit down and take a break. That's what personally helps me. But I also have like a breathing technique I like to do. I always just like step outside if it's necessary. Because the biggest thing is if I don't like listen to myself in the moment, I can struggle with panic attacks and um, derealization and like dissociation where I kind of like shut out the world and everything just kind of feels cloudy and unreal. And it can be really scary when you're alone. So I often usually go with somebody I can trust too. So that way when that happens, they can kind of just like tell me it's okay and they can help me like come up with a plan. Let's say this water pitcher in my right hand is information or input. And this glass in my left hand is how much I can handle or how much I can take at a given moment. So someone gives you input or information, they start pouring into that glass. That glass starts to get full pretty quick. And you have to say when enough is enough because sometimes the glass might overflow. And I have a towel here, so I'm catching that water there. (laughs) So on that note, whenever I'm feeling about to be overwhelmed or have had enough, I will say the glass is full. That was our family code for you have to back up and shut up now, but as a more polite way to say so. So coming up with that system, I think made a big difference. And I even... I give them kind of a pre-warning now, like glass 98% full, silence advised. And then when I say the glass is full, it's silence required or quiet, please. And they will respect my wishes. For me, I think driving is a big, can be a trigger for me. Like I don't mind taking a plane, train, bus, what have you, or even like being in the passenger seat of a car. For me, it's always like driving because, you know, I drive a lot, sometimes not even by my decision. And I don't know, it just always feels very stressful for me just trying to get from one place to another by driving. 
especially if it's like a long distance at a short amount of time, it really is very stressful for me. And just, I think what helps me though, is just trying to get an early start with my drive and just knowing where exactly it is, like how many miles it is. Just having that information beforehand is really helpful for me. Sometimes we don't realize that we have different types of coping skills. And you might think that one type kind of fits all. That's why it is really important to identify it, one, for yourself, and two, so that you can communicate with others because it's just another form of advocacy. So emotion-focused coping skills, some of those examples include exercising, like taking a bath, giving yourself you know, some words of encouragement, meditating. And then problem-focused coping skills are managing your time, making a to-do list, creating some of those, you know, hard, healthy boundaries and asking for support. So for me, I do tend to be more problem focused. And I think with with that, I love a to-do list and I like to do time management because where I find that I get overwhelmed is if something goes wrong as far as a time management or a schedule kind of thing. And then that's when I'll, I'll have a little bit of um, harder time with coping, but I always find that if I, I make a plan, I get through it better versus give myself a pep talk. That doesn't really work for me, but I have, you know, friends and family, if they are stressed out, you know, they'll just stop, take a bath, take a shower, and then they're good to go. So I think it is important to kind of know what's best for you and, you know, be okay with it's not a one size fits all. In episode 87, we brought back three special guests, our CEO, Molly, our partner from Saudi Arabia, Yasser Al-Jaidi, and the founder of the Do Better movement, Dr. Megan Miller. Molly announced the first courses of our new leadership series, and Yasser and Megan shared their takeaways from Leadership Academy and 2019's Global Summit, the Global Autism Project's first annual conference, which was held in Bali, Indonesia. I ask every single one of my team to join the Leadership Academy. And there were a lot of, as Molly said, tangible real-life outcomes. We start saying, okay, that's an excuse. Let's talk about that, the solution. Okay, so this child is doing this, this, and uh, he was like that, and his mother did that, and he spoke, okay, that's all our excuses, explanations, and they are good. But we won't be satisfied with them. We won't say, okay, so we know how or why he did that. Thank you. See you tomorrow. No. What are the solutions for that? We can help this child overcome his challenging behavior. We can help this family overcome the challenge in the school because a teacher or a school system won't be adaptive enough for our child in that school. So instead of understanding, explaining, excusing the situation, no, there's no limits for the possibilities. We did an exercise that was similar for those who are listening that are familiar with ACT, similar to like a self as context type activity where we had to answer some questions about ourselves and Cassie pointed out something about me that she had thought, and it was about the do better movement and things that I was doing. 
And she basically said, I wonder if you've ever just been proud. (laughs) What if you don't do better and you're just proud of what you've accomplished so far? And that was a really emotional moment. It was a very simple statement, but it had a really big impact on me. And just thinking about, yeah, how much time do I give to being grateful for the people that I'm working with and then the things that we're accomplishing? I'm always just go, go, go. <laughs> so it gave me you know, an opportunity to sort of step back and appreciate the things that we've been doing and take pride in, in the things we've accomplished. So that was really helpful as well. The biggest thing that we're setting out to do with these trainings is, for instance, in that overwhelm training, we're going to go deep. We're going to look at like, really, really, why are you overwhelmed? We talk about what you're getting out of it. And I know that sounds ludicrous to do the training so you can see what we're doing with that. But, you know, I really think in a way there's the COVID pandemic and there's also this pandemic of burnout and overwhelm and frustration. And we've been talking about this for years at the Global Autism Project because skill force seemed to be the antidote for it in a way. And so we are not new. And, you know, I think one of the most heartbreaking things is that we would have skill core orientation And I would ask people to raise their hand if they felt like they were so burnt out, they thought about leaving the field in the last month, in the last two months, in the last year. And the majority of hands would go up. And so there really is this epidemic or pandemic of of burnout and overwhelm. And a lot of that is mitigated with, as Yasser said, mindset. And a lot of that is mitigated with systems and with processes. And again, I'm 18 years in to this organization. That's like not normal, <laughs> you know? Um, and it wouldn't have worked if I couldn't have figured out how to create this organization, build a team that really, really believes in creating balance, really believes in, you know, just really celebrating accomplishments. They understand how to move a project from idea to execution. So that took some doing. So I'm really excited to just be sharing that with everybody. Just a reminder, the first courses of our new leadership series, The Art of Delegation and Fearless Feedback, are now available at leadership.globalautismproject.org. And as a valued podcast listener, you can take advantage of the promo code AUTISMPODCAST for an extra 10% off. In episode 88, I spoke with Camille Proctor, who is the mother of a 15-year-old autistic boy and the founder of The Color of Autism, a nonprofit organization committed to educating and assisting African-American families with autistic children. Listen to Camille's ideas about how to include more Black people in autism research and teach police officers about autism. I just think that it's really stressful to a parent at that moment when you're talking to them about this study that you're giving them a $30 card for, they can't see the value in it because they're just looking at you like, I got all this stuff to do and I don't have time for it. But I think that in the inception of these studies, they need to have the color of autism or other nonprofits or scientists of color at the table. Because I think that they tend to miss some of the nuances. Just like I said, mom, three kids, two jobs, you know, those things are important in regards to the data collection, right? What are the stressors in the home, outside the home? What's the demographic 
of the school that they're going to. You know, how many kids in a district have special needs? There's so much stuff that needs to be collected. But what keeps happening is that we have these scientists that are out here and they're pushing out these surveys and it's the same thing. The Pope is Catholic. That's the finding. It's basically like, okay, (laughs) there's a disparity in the underserved community. Well, we've known that for 20 years. What I would like to see, how is the disparity going to end? You can't end the disparity if you can't penetrate that community properly. And the reason they haven't been able to penetrate or get into these communities properly because of what their offerings are. It's plain and simple. You have to be able to offer a parent, and I'm not saying money is everything, but you have to understand that there has to be something beneficial. There has to be a beneficial outcome. You know, you need to be able to come to a parent and say, we're doing this study because we want to minimize the isolation you experience. We're doing this study because we want to make things better for your child. And you have to be able to tell them the specifics of it. Don't just say, oh, we just want you to fill out this little survey, check the box if he flaps, check the box at what age of dying. That's not helpful. I think that the focus is too heavy on those behaviors as a negative. And I think one of the ways that you train the police, and I'm trying to think of things, is like we have a program where we take our youth group and we have the police come in and we have them support each other so they can forge organic friendships, right? And this is over weeks. This is not like on a Saturday in an auditorium. This is like weeks where they're getting to know Jeff or they're getting to know Gina and some of the things that they like to do, some of the things that makes them anxious, some of the behavior. And they get to understand better if they're immersed or get connected to one another. And that's the key. You have to be able to connect the two in order for the police to understand. Last but not least, in episode 89, we hosted a global autism community roundtable discussion about masking and authenticity. Participating in this event were autism self-advocates Michael Gilberg, Jeff Snyder, David Sharif, Tara Vance, Kate Jones, and Thomas Island. In these last clips, listen to the wide range of opinions about masking and authenticity from the different self-advocates. I think masking, in my view, is about trying to quote-unquote appear normal and fit in and conform to society's expectations. Although there is, as I always say, a level of social conformity we all have to go along with to live in polite society. There are things that you have to do just to be around other people, autistic or not. And you can't just say, well, it's my autism. It doesn't allow you to go around hitting people. So I think masking is more a sense of appearing normal and trying to fit into society because people notice people who stand out. We can't just quote unquote, be our true selves if being our true selves infringes on the rights or the personal space of others. We all put on different faces for different situations. How I present myself in a professional context versus a friend versus on a date, they're going to be very different things. For me, I think masking is a very, it can be, uh, it's very, very harmful because one of the big things, particularly around this time of year, is that you're going to be around people that you really don't talk to on a daily basis. 
And some of these people, you probably don't even want to talk to to begin with. So you try to hide your emotions and you're really doing more harm than good to yourself in terms of being somebody that you're not. Both my folks come from very, very large families. And when we have family gatherings, I would, you know, try to make the best of the situation that I have. And being on the spectrum, I would much rather not be involved in certain family activities, but, you know, I, you know, had an obligation as a family member. And, you know, I would just, you know, put the mask on for like an hour. And then when I take it off after I get home, I would just feel exhausted. And masking is extremely exhausting. And, and again, there'd be a lot of situations where I would have to, you know, mentally drag myself into doing what I needed to do. So it's very, very hard in a way. For me, masking is just not really interacting with anyone, just putting yourself in your own room. And then people are looking at you thinking, why do you feel so lonely? And then you really don't have a good answer to why somebody could be asking you that. And there are many assumptions that come out with it, where it's like, okay, we should not interact with this person because this person is not saying a word. And I've had that struggle because I never expressed myself appropriately when being around others. The ability to verbally speak does not exactly mean that you are cooperating with others. The way you behave about it is what determines it. So masking kind of went beyond my skills. And as I was able to express myself further, masking has not felt accustomed for me. It's very hard to switch gears for me to between interacting with autistic people and then going back to interacting with non-autistic people. It used to be a subconscious thing before I knew that I was autistic and what masking was. But now I'm consciously aware of it and it's acutely painful to do it every time, to show empathy in a way that, not feel empathy differently, but show it in a way that does not feel natural to me. You know, I feel extremely obvious. I think that it's just that it depends on speech patterns and how similar or different they are. That's the thing that people are looking for and facial expressions. And so if you come across as charismatic or witty, if you have a sense of humor, because people have, you know, all these stereotypes, I make a morbid joke about everything. And so I don't know. Masking is more about the projection of the person we're speaking to than about us. As much as I live a so much more authentic a life than I ever have, I'm still not there. I'm still, I'm still masking. I still need a mask because society hasn't changed enough for me to be that raw and that vulnerable all the time. That's, that's not a safe thing to do. I still have to consider this, but like professionally, I still have to consider the spaces I go into and say, hi, I'm a psychotherapist and I'm autistic because most most people are like, mm, well, autistic people aren't empathetic. 
empathic. So, you know, there's still those those decisions. A, bit, a little bit like as a queer person, I never and never have reached out for my partner's hand in public without making a snap risk assessment of how safe that is. I have never, as an autistic person, kind of not assessed how authentic it is safe to be in any moment. And there's a weight to that. I am one of the 7% outliers, if you will, who puts person first. And I do that because if you want to be accepted by humanity, you must first acknowledge and accept your own humanity. And when people approach us as if we are a problem instead of a person, that whole conversation is going to go downhill. And I think that's been kind of the underlying narrative, like people on the autism spectrum have things that need to be solved instead of just allowing us to be, we're talking about authenticity here. What if we just let people with autism be who they are, who they want to be? And I know our parents, professionals like yourselves, love the child or mean well, but you can't live their lives for them. They have to find their own path and do what's right for them at the end of the day when all is said and done. And I've got countless stories of times where I was a people pleaser. Or I, I shut up so that I didn't, or didn't want to rock the boat. But I also have stories of times where I, I finally spoke up. And that made me a better person, I think, more than anything. And that's a wrap. As I was reflecting on these past episodes from 2021, I was overcome with immense gratitude for our community. A huge thank you to our guests for sharing their stories, to our listeners for your continued support, and to our team for putting it all together. Special thanks to our community moderators, Kia Burton, Jeff Snyder, and David Sharif for monitoring posts daily and keeping our online space safe and respectful. We're taking an extended pause of releasing episodes to set goals and intentions for the upcoming year. We'll be back on our regular release schedule on January 20th in 2022. This will give you some time to catch up on any episodes you might have missed or that have caught your interest from listening to our highlights. From all of us at the Global Autism Project, we wish you a happy and safe holiday season and hope you can spend some quality time with your loved ones. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.